Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of DPS Radio. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. This is an impromptu episode of sorts. As many of you will be well aware, I have been under the weather this week. I got a touch of the stomach flu, and I wasn't originally intending on having DPS Radio at all. But uh, call it the luck of the socialist gods and goddesses, if you will. But I am feeling better, and I'm ready to do this. And uh, my guests this week have been so kind and generous with their time to share their experiences as rank-and-file educators and proud union members and organizers uh, to talk about this strike wave that we are seeing that is well underway in places like Los Angeles. We are picking up the thread from last year's red state strike and we're turning it into a blue state strike. And we're going to be talking about the significance of that. Our first guest up uh, to talk about the LA strike and his activity as a trade union militant in New York city is Ryan Bruckenthal. Ryan is a member of AFT in New York city. He is a member of the Moore caucus, which we will talk much more about And he is also a part of the up-and-coming DSA Teachers Movement. Uh, We're going to talk a lot more about that throughout the course of the episode. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on DPS, my man. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Adam. Glad you're feeling better. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining in on the live stream. Give us a thumbs up and a a nod if the sound is coming through loud and clear, if we are well-balanced and all the rest of it. Uh, if I hear nothing, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just, I'll just, uh, you know, we'll figure everything is perfect and uh, we're golden. And we'll just keep going, plowing through. Yeah, the socialist gods will be with us here as well. That's right. I'm feeling lucky, man. I, I'm out of bed for the first time in several days, and I'm, I'm ready to talk some uh, class struggle. It's a class struggle power hour. Let's do this. So, Ryan, you are. Uh, not only a member of the AFT, which has a kind of mixed bag as far as militancy across the country, that's that's for sure. Uh, but on a much more militant and exciting note, you are a member of the Moore Caucus in New York City. Tell us a little bit about that before moving on to the overall movement inside of DSA to organize teachers. And then from there on out, we'll kind of pivot to talk about what you witnessed as an onlooker and participant Um when you uh, visited the LA strike uh, this past week. So tell us a little bit about your involvement in the AFT and the Moore caucus in New York city. Great. So I'm a high school special ed teacher. I teach uh, ninth and 10th grade global history. um, And I'm a member of actually our, our local local two of the AFT is known as the UFT here in New York city. It's the largest local within the UFT, which if you're including retirees has, upwards of 180,000 members. Um, So some serious uh, potential working class power with that. 
Um, our union, like many other unions in the United States over the past couple decades, has relied um, largely on a strategy of uh, relying on uh, political favors from folks that we help get elected, sort of the idea that we scratch your back, you scratch ours, um, with really not so much of an orientation of organizing at the school level and, and organizing the rank and file. Um, so uh, our caucus, more caucus, the movement of rank and file educators, was started as a way to try to, to reform our union from the bottom up, recognizing that while it's great that we have 180,000 members, um, really that's only powerful when we're in action and when we're in movement. And so we can look at the strike wave of last year that's going into LA. Currently, we know that unions are powerful when members are engaging in struggles at their schools and when they come together in militant action. And that includes striking and that includes other actions um, leading up to strikes. So our caucus has a different vision for running the union. And we're so excited that um, the strike over in LA is giving us momentum and giving us the ability to talk to our coworkers about a different vision uh, for our union, uh, importantly, because we have a different vision for schools and our society. And we recognize that we can play a leading role in helping to transform our city and, and transform our schools. Yeah, yeah, spot on, spot on. So let's talk a little bit about the theme of the show because you, you really touched on that perfectly. Um, getting a little bit of feedback there. Did you did you lose your uh, headphone connection? Yeah, I'll put myself on mute while I'm not talking. How about that? Okay, no worries. No worries. Okay, great. So uh, the the theme of the show is uh, teachers fight back against the neoliberal agenda, which you've just pointed to uh, very succinctly and poignantly, my friend. So we'll, we'll we'll dive into that head on. So it's not just the fact that you are a local activist in your local AFT chapter. Um, it's not just the fact that you were inspired, the New York City teachers were inspired by the core caucus in Chicago, which you might just say a couple of words about. I think uh, most notably, we're really, really proud out of the core caucus as socialists this week uh, because president of that um, of that union uh, the Chicago Teachers Union who uh, came out their leadership came out of the core caucus uh, some years ago as many of our listeners will be well aware uh, as one of the earliest examples of this kind of uh, militant trade union fight back in the education sector in, in recent uh, decades. Uh, Jesse Sharkey, president of the CTU, uh, infamously responded to a question from a reporter. The reporter asked, well, where is all this money going to come from for these extra teachers and resources and all the rest of them? And he just didn't blink for one second. He said, we're going to take it from rich people. And that's just a brilliant response, and that really encapsulates that kind of class war mentality that is permeating uh, the education sector. And I think it's really fantastic uh, that you guys have been able to try to emulate that in New York City, and now that strike wave is uh, is spreading into blue states and blue cities alike, which is going to challenge the Democrats' neoliberal agenda uh, in the realm of education that goes back to Arne Duncan. And, and well before him in the Clinton administration, Democrats have been uh, on the forefront of the privatization and neoliberalization of education. And many of the leading Democratic Party uh, presidential candidates going into the primary have been privatizers in chief, thinking specifically of Cory Booker and many of the other uh, alleged progressives on the ticket have been enthusiastic about privatization and charterization of the schools as well. And so we're going to talk much, much more about that. So I'm blabbing out at the mouth. I'm blabbing off at the mouth as usual. I'm excited to talk about strikes and class war. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved 
in the LA scene? What is DSA up to with uh, their teachers movement here? Yeah, so the Moore Caucus, um, based here in New York, has connections with similar uh, rank-and-file caucuses all around the country. Um, as you brought up, when CORE took over the CTU, it really gave unionists uh, a vision for how we can run our unions. And, and more importantly, it gave us uh, resources and infrastructure for us to try and uh, do similar things um, where we're at. So the Moore Caucus was was formed immediately after core took over in Chicago. Um, and there's been a network, sort of a loose affiliation of these groups that's known as UCOR, um, which is the United Caucuses of Rank and File Educators. And so through this network, um, we've been in touch with strike leaders and militants all across the country, um, that being uh, both folks in West Virginia, folks in Arizona, folks in Oklahoma. Um, and in fact, it was a, a UCOR affiliated, um, or rather just a network uh, sort of milieu caucus that took over the LA Teachers Union um, some years ago. And that's very much why we can see this movement that's going on. It's sort of a reoccurring theme in American labor history, where um, very often these big strike actions are, are preceded with some degree of internal transformation and internal organization um, to have a, a new orientation for the union. So oh, right. when um, I believe it was uh, Union Power was the name of the caucus, took over uh, the UTLA from a sort of slowly, um, more, uh, rely on, uh, political connections and not really, uh, be a, an organized, uh, class struggle union. That was the old guard. When, uh, union power took over, they sort of set their, their goals on, we need to transform the schools. We know the only way that we can credibly do that is to organize towards a strike. And we need to start organizing towards that now. Um, so I'm blabbering on as well, but uh, I mean to get to the point. No, that, not at uh, all. You're, you're here to blabber on. <laughs> they, all right, cool. you're, you're the one they want to listen to. Yeah, by all means. I'm going I'm to bring all these thoughts. It may be scatterbrained and it may be tangents, but they'll come back around. Oh, we're going sure. galaxy brain by the end of the night, bro. Pro trust me on that one. It's all going right, full cool. galaxy, bro. Everybody buckle up. <laughs> all right. I'm on. I'm on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so our connections with the UTLA leadership actually were one of the reasons why I ended up being able to go to Los Angeles. Um, they, in addition to organizing at the school level, which is the most important thing for organizing a strike or any mass action, um, they have been in connection with militants and with leaders in like-minded locals and, and locations all around the country. Um, and we very early on were saying we want to come and we want to help out. Um, we want to provide strike solidarity in whatever ways we can. Um, and so that was why I was able to, to travel with a, a group of teacher union militants from around the country to Los Angeles just a couple days ago and to, to take part in this historic struggle. Um, now, I had to teach today. I had to teach yesterday. So unfortunately, I was only able to take two personal days um, as per our UFT contract uh, to go to L.A. I would have loved to have stayed longer, um, but I had to come here to teach the youth. But we still have uh, comrades uh, from all around the country who are involved in teacher union organizing to one extent who, who are still helping out with the strike. Um, so that's how I got there. And I, I really look forward to, to reporting back a little bit of what I saw. Um, and yeah, but I, I think that answers sort of what you were looking for of how it was I ended up in L.A. Yeah, um, yeah. One other 
One other part that I'll add too is in addition to my organizing within more and within uh, the UCOR network is our uh, network of democratic socialist teachers within DSA. Right. This is a really um, exciting development. Let's let's get into this. You guys released cool. a pamphlet uh, just a couple of well, a few months ago. Maybe it's been even longer now. Trying to encourage uh, teachers to become, you know, uh, integrated activists and socialists. A real propagandizing effort that really scared the hell out of the right wingers in a really delicious sort of way. Tell us, tell us much more about that project. Yeah, I mean, it, it also goes the other way around where we were trying to get uh, socialists to become teachers right, as right. a way of uh, helping to transform the unions. A it's classic uh, seeding effort, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So it's our, our way of uh, making the rank and file strategy, if you will, from uh, the old solidarity days relevant to, to 2018 and 2019 um, within DSA. Uh, we recognize that we already had a fair amount of teachers in DSA, both here in New York and around the country. Um, and so from that, we were able to start our organizing efforts and getting folks involved in local caucus organizing or, or just local union organizing. But, you know, the moment calls for uh, serious stakes and, and serious uh increase in our efforts. And so we wanted to, to put the call out across the country of why socialists should consider becoming teachers. Um, and so that's why we created this pamphlet. It was coordinated between our youth wing, YDSA, mm -hmm. and our national labor body, the DSLC. And it was specifically for uh, the youth wing's summer conference over in, uh, in Minneapolis this summer as a way of talking to younger socialists who maybe are just getting involved in the movement to really think about this as a, a lifetime struggle and to think about what is the most strategic role that they can play in this movement and to help grow it and to, to help uh, excel and accelerate the movement. Um, and one of those is to, you know, consider becoming a, a rank and file unionist. Now, uh, we, we as teachers helped create this pamphlet, but in DSA, we also are looking to organize in other strategic sectors. I know that we're in the process of creating a why socialists should become nurses pamphlet um, and just generally why socialists should look to the labor movement and sort of the most strategic way of doing so, uh, becoming rank and file union members. Right. Um, so but so let, me, let me jump in there and let, let me, yeah, uh, yeah. I, we didn't plan ahead, so I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but. I presume you're you're prepared. Give us a quick uh, elevator speech. Why should socialists become teachers? Give the pitch for maybe some youngsters out there, people who are looking for a career change, looking for some not only a meaningful career, but a way to kind of make a, a real meaningful impact in uh, in the political uh, scene. Why why should yeah, socialists absolutely. become teachers? I am going to come back afterwards and say how uh, DSA helped bring me uh, over to LA and helped bring uh, rank and file teachers in the UCOR yep. network to LA. And uh, spoiler alert, it was helpful helping to fundraise and to just create the, uh, the financial capacity for us to do that. Right, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I wanted to become a teacher even before I was a socialist back when I was in high school, I kind of knew that I wanted to do it. I loved talking about ideas. I loved my teachers. I loved my classes. Um, and so when I went to college, I was initially planning on becoming a teacher. However, uh, I caught the, uh, the socialism bug and I, I became a, a student organizer. And so while I was in college, uh, especially towards the end when I was doing student organizing and student labor solidarity, I realized that I needed to be uh, really involved in the labor movement and I needed to find the best way to do it. And so this was back in like 2012, 2013. At that time, uh, I figured the best way to be a union activist was to become a staffer because that was what uh, a lot of people that were in my milieu were doing. Um, so I, I did a program, which I also would recommend called Union Semester, which is involved, uh, affiliated with CUNY here in New York City, which is a labor studies program. And then uh, 
connects uh, students with internships at labor unions for the most part with the goal of people pursuing jobs and or careers in labor or community organizers. Um, and so that's what I did. And I was a union organizer for many years. It was great. I learned a lot of skills. However, as my political consciousness uh, developed and I started started to see the limitations of what I was able to do as a staff organizer, um, sort of getting frustrated with, you know, I would put in a lot of time and effort and try to to move things along to, to organize and to, to mobilize. However, when there was lacking a sort of a core of union members who shared uh, my vision for what the union could and should be, many of those organizing efforts kind of just fell to the wayside. And right, so right. through that development and through uh, political education, I realized that that in fact, um, you know, socialists have been involved in the labor movement for for decades, or really a century or two since you know the two movements have been around. They've been connected to one another, and so right, uh, right. it is a fascinating interplay there. The way that mm-hmm. teachers uh, strikes, particularly when teachers uh, were even uh, was a much more gendered profession even than it is now, and that when teachers were almost exclusively uh, women, at least in, in this country, that wasn't the case overseas in many areas, but, uh, but women who, who were teachers often, uh, led the way in various strike actions and general strikes uh, across the country in really fan, uh, really fascinating sorts of ways. And so those, those kind of, um, to use a business buzzword, uh, those, that synergistic effect between nice. t- yeah, that was We're going to circle the wagons and, uh, and do all that good shit. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I pull it, I just pulled out my whiteboard. We're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to think about, we're going to dream up some strategies and, and I don't know anyway. Uh, yeah, no, but you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, education is such a, an important sector to look to organizing um, for many ways, especially as socialists, you know, it's sort of the, not the classical uh, capitalist production sector where we as socialist unionists can go in and stop capitalist production in like uh, sort of you, what you'd be able to do in a factory or uh, a truck depot or something like that. However, it is, you know, the place of social reproduction. And as you're saying, it's a a gendered um, phenomenon in industry as well. And so we're training the future workers of capitalism. And so there's some serious strategic uh, value that we have of being able to to be in that place of social reproduction, both for our ability to disrupt that when engaging in in strike action like we see, but also to help to shape the minds of, of young people. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about ideas with, uh, you know, classrooms of 20 to 30 young people who are deciding what they want to do with their lives and deciding what they believe in and how they see themselves in relation to others in the world. Um, and it's really exciting. So in addition to being a, you know, a militant trade unionist, I'm also able to, to be a social human being and, and work in a job where that's incredibly rewarding to that extent. Um, and, and just to, to shape or to circle back around to sort of my coming to terms with the limitations of the, the staff union strategy, I, it was sort of a, a coming home or, or synthesis of what I had always wanted to do with then still my desire to, to build the union movement. And so I decided a couple of years ago to uh, join my comrades in the UFT by becoming a rank and file teacher. Um, and sort of the rest has been history. And I will say it's been a perfect time to do that, uh, oh, yeah. given the strike wave. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for a better time to to join uh, the ranks of teachers. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, the way that I'm framing this episode and, and what we're kind of uh, 
we're, we're getting here in a very organic way and in terms of the way the direction of the conversation is that what makes this this year's strike wave so fascinating is that it's happening in blue states and you know we we just don't have the time unfortunately to go in depth about last year's strike wave but by and large uh, they were interesting for a number of reasons. They were notable because they happened in uh, red states, uh, places like North Carolina, West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, um, and and uh, states with majority Republican, uh, you know, governors, uh, state Congress, uh, state bodies in, in the Congress, and 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 at local local levels as well. And these are people who were not. Uh, you know, pink pussy hat wearing hashtag resistors in many, many cases, right? However, they became very strident, militant uh, trade union activists in the course of waging class war at the point of production. Hmm. Funny that, huh? Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, what we've been saying all along, huh? Kind of what socialists have been have been saying for centuries. And uh, so it's nice to see our theory play out in in real practice here. But what makes this year so interesting is that these strikes are are playing out in blue states and in deep blue cities even. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about what you saw when you went to L.A. You already mentioned uh, what what enabled you to do that. I can't stress enough that uh, little seemingly minute detail. Uh, t- talk to us a little bit of how, about how that organizational capacity that you and a number of other labor activists inside of DSA were able to kind of leverage in order to make this convergence happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, organizing takes bodies, people in the streets, people in our movements, people in our organizations. And then at the end of the day, it requires money as well. And, you know, we need to be able to fundraise um, in order to to organize and to do the type of work that we want to do. And so luckily, DSA, as a massive organization of nearly 60,000 members, um, maybe we don't have uh, the amount of trade union militants that we would like to have and that we're working towards having, but we still have a lot of people who, who generally agree with uh, trade union militancy and agree with uh, and support the UTLA strikers. So when we talked with teacher union leaders, many of whom are DSA members across the country, but many of whom are not, but are sympathetic to the organization to try and figure out what is the way that DSA could help, um, it just became clear that all right, let's fundraise. Let's raise a couple thousand dollars in order to get teachers to agree to take the time off from work, to fly to Los Angeles, to be a part of this strike. And I do want to say we were specifically trying to get teachers from last year's strike wave to go there, to build those connections um, in many respects so that this uh, escalation or this this next stage of the teacher rebellion, the fact that it is going to um, the cities of entrenched Democratic Party politicians, um, that we can see that it is a very common struggle that we had um, in places like West Virginia and Oklahoma. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I, I do want to respond to one thing you said, which is, you know, it's it is great that we're able to see the organic uh, spontaneity of uh worker uprising and people getting involved in the movement in these places that were deemed as, you know, irredeemably conservative. However, I will say there's a history of struggle in Oklahoma, in West Virginia, maybe not so much as in Arizona, but you know what they also had, even if it was below the radar, is they had a core group of union socialist militants in these places that were willing to, to learn from labor history and were willing to, to try and organize using their, their socialist values and their socialist vision. Um, it was only a couple of years ago that, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign was a politicizing moment for many millennials, um, including some of the West Virginia teacher strike leaders who during that campaign were like, you know what, we do need Medicare for all. 
you know what? We do need uh, worker protections and worker organizing, and we're going to do it here. We're going to start a Jacobin reading group in Charleston, West Virginia, and we're going to start talking about what would it look like to organize our union. And even you, you don't need that many uh, core organizers and core activists to be able to to make the ripples that would inevitably become the uh, the massive strike in West Virginia. Right, right. Um, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point. I didn't mean to diminish the uh, importance of well placed and well prepared activists at at, a, at an opportune moment. Um, that can be incredibly decisive. As I say on this show, um, my life and my own uh, course of action as a socialist and as an organizer uh, is proof positive that the butterfly effect is real, to put it in a kind of vulgar bullshit sort of bullshit pop uh, philosophy sort of way. But uh, that's kind of what you're talking about here. And so what, what essentially what you were trying to kind of uh, – uh, push on, uh, push forward was to to bring these teachers together in a national context. So that's what you were trying to do there in LA. Talk to us a little bit about what the DSA chapter in Los Angeles is already up to, and I'm sure they've already been underway. Their operations and their solidarity with the strike has already been underway for quite some time. And uh, so tell us a little bit about what you found when you arrived on the scene in LA earlier this week. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, there are UTLA members and, uh, you know, people uh, higher up in the union who are socialists, many of whom are DSA members. Some are members of other socialist organizations, uh, the ISO being one of them. Um, so already the, the connection between the labor movement and the socialist movement was a part of this struggle and a part of this union. Um, but DSA, in addition to just having militants in the shop, is also playing a, a key role in doing uh, solidarity actions. The, the LA branch had a really incredible um, solidarity effort that was covered by a ton of news outlets, including, I think I saw USA Today, it was the uh, Tacos for Teachers effort, where they were raising thousands of dollars to get a taco vendor out there on um, these mass rallies in the city center um, to just create food for uh, yeah. for the strikers. It's sort of like the best case of um, mutual aid is when we see these efforts are, are directly a part of a, a mass mobilization or a mass strike like we saw. So DSA, in coordination with the ISO, um, helped put that effort together. And, you know, after a long day of marching and picketing, I myself went and imbibed in a couple tacos and seeing some of the UTLA leaders on the line, reading the sign, seeing that it was DSA and the ISO that were doing that thanking us, thanking the people who were serving the food um, and, and recognizing that that was what made that happen and what was able to, to feed the thousands of teachers that were on strike. Um, it was sort of a similar phenomenon when we're fundraising to fly the teachers from around the country, you know, even the the teachers or the the leaders who aren't in DSA yet, they recognize, wow, thank you for doing the work to make this happen. Um, and so it, it's incredibly exciting to see that DSA is taken as, you know, a serious part and element of the American labor movement in 2019. Um, let me right. think of some other things on the ground. I mean, DSA was phone banking its members to turn people out to different picket lines. They adopted three schools in Los Angeles in different geographic areas, one of which was the school that I was able to, to make the pickets at. On the first day, I would roughly say that there had to have been about a thousand people out on the on the picket lines. It was you know a massive complex of six different schools within it. Um, so between teachers, parents, students, um, DSA members that were turned out, um, these were really massive pickets. And so um, 
the phone banking and the turning people out to the picket lines is also recognized. The DSA chapter made these awesome pins that are LADSA supports UTLA. Um, and then just nationally, whenever these big strikes are occurring, and we did this during the teacher strike wave of last year as well, is putting the call out for solidarity photos. It's something that's sort of pretty straightforward and easy that help builds rapport and can be used as a, an organizing opportunity, both whether that's, you know, someone in the, the Lawrence, Kansas DSA chapter taking a photo of the, the meeting with a sign that says we support UTLA strikers or um, in a better case scenario when we're able to talk to our members who are union members to be like, hey, get your union meeting to take a sign saying, you know, Teamsters or UFT members or whatever it is supports UTLA strikers as well. Right, right. Um, and so DSA members have really been playing a key role in, in doing that sort of national coordination as well. I can't, I can't, as a, a someone who has been through a long and arduous and very militant strike myself, uh, as I often talk about on the show, I, I try not to talk about it obnoxiously because those types of things can be obnoxious, but uh, it's highly relevant. So I'll jump in, but I can tell you those, those little signs of solidarity from across the country and across the world are incredibly inspirational when morale can start getting a, a little low. You feel like you're out there on a limb. The employer starts making threats. The state starts making threats. Uh, the cops are showing up with increasing frequency and making good on their threats. And um, those little acts of solidarity can be huge. And as well, that taco truck, I'll tell you, having participated in a long strike in the middle of the winter in the great north, we had a coffee and hot chocolate uh, truck that was paid for yep. by a coalition of local trade, local area trade unions. And, uh, you know, free of charge, they just drive around and you'd show up and get your, your hot cup of coffee and, and warm your hands, which were numb from walking the picket lines all morning. And uh, it, it's a tremendous source of morale and just sustenance. And so if you see, if, if listeners out there see a drive for pizza or for whatever, uh, you know, donate whatever change that you can, uh, because those pizza deliveries to strike headquarters when the militants have been on the on the picket line since 5 a.m., you know, and they head into their their strike captain meetings at seven o'clock in the afternoon in the evening after being you know active for 14 hours that that those two slices of pizza uh, might be some of the only things that you're able to shove in your mouth uh, all day. And so you, you, you know, that, that's really not to be understated, <laughs> uh, th those, those small acts of solidarity, just from a personal note. So I think it's really great that DSA can get in there and demonstrate our solidarity in a real concrete and meaningful sort of way. Um, let's talk very briefly. I want to loop in our other guest. I'm going to be uh, ringing him and having him join us on the call very soon. Uh, Justin Kirkland's going to be joining us. He's a veteran teacher out of Denver. They're going to have a very decisive and important strike vote going into the holiday weekend here. And we're going to be talking about that explicitly. But before we do that, let's spend about five minutes breaking down the X's and O's of the strike and the kind of vibe you, got, you, hear, you heard on the ground. I would do this much more explicitly, but I went into this at length on a weekly rundown a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that part of the weekly rundown I made free of charge. It was about a 20-minute uh, intro that I, I made freely available on the main SoundCloud page on the main RSS feed of DPS. So folks, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back and listen to it. It's from two weeks ago. I, I talked very explicitly about the, the players, the process of bargaining that was incredibly bad faith and um, – and duplicitous on the part of the administration, the way in which uh, L.A. school superintendent Austin Butner is this uh, millionaire philanthropist who is trying to billionaire, turn. I believe. I'm sorry. I believe billionaire. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. As uh, trying to to uh, is he a billionaire? I wasn't sure if he was. I didn't want to give him the credit of being a billionaire if he was just I, one I, of these. I heard on the picket line. Sorry, <laughs> no, I'll say my source is that. Yeah. Well, this these day and I mean this day and age, but that's that's the real sick thing about this, right? We just kind of started off as a joke, but this is some real shit. This real sick thing about our 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 era, our moment is that a millionaire is like Psh, he's just a millionaire, right? To, to be a real mover and shaker these days, you got to be a billionaire with a B. Like that's how fucking disgusting income inequality has become. But anyway, he's a billionaire. He's a philanthropist. His only experience in management comes in uh, finance. And he's trying to uh, privatize and neoliberalize that uh, that uh, school district, as has been the case in many other areas, to open it up for uh, financial speculation and private profits. So talk a little bit about that process and how activists and teachers are handling that on the ground. Absolutely. So I can't stress enough how the union has stressed that Austin or uh, Butner represents the billionaire class, and this is a fight for the soul of Los Angeles' schools. And that resonates all the way down from the union. It really reminded me of the CTU being very upfront about Rahm Emanuel being the enemy to the working class of Chicago and being an enemy to the teachers. Butner is a very easy target to point as just the one person who has the ability to, to enact some of these changes that um, both he wants to. To, to happen to LA schools, but then importantly, he's the the direct pressure of for what uh, the teachers uh, want in turn. So at every rally you go to, people are screaming about Butner. They're screaming about the billionaire class. It really, um, I can't stress enough for from my perspective how the discourse from the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, seemed like really, really relevant, um, uh, both from leadership of the union, but even just the rank and file members who maybe are just becoming politicized. And this is their, their first strike and first political action for many of them. Um, so yeah, as you said, Butner wants to privatize the schools in Los Angeles and the union has a completely fundamentally different vision for schools. And this is important, I think, both for being able to win a strike, which depends in large parts of uh, public support, especially when you're a public sector union, um, they are putting at the forefront the fact that this is a struggle for all Los Angeles's citizens and all of the working class of Los Angeles, students, parents, and teachers saying that we need wraparound services like nurses and librarians and guidance counselors in every school saying we need smaller class sizes, which is one of the like best predictors of student performance and actually being able to, to affect um, real uh, pedagogical change in a classroom. They're saying that we want to limit two charter schools, which aren't able to provide for students with disabilities and for English language learners. So these are the three things that they're putting at the forefront um, of course, issues of funding and, of course, issues of wages and healthcare are involved in any union fight, but they really are striking on behalf of LA's students and the working class of LA. So it's just a fundamentally different vision uh, that the union is putting forward from Butner, and they are highlighting that this is a, an issue of class war and class struggle in order to make it so. So by pointing out and a, a speech that the president of the UTLA gave on that first day uh, after this mass rally of, I think it was like 50,000 people on this March when we showed up to uh, Butner's headquarters, um, you know, the president saying that it, this is the richest state in the richest country in a city that has, I think it was more billionaires per capita or some crazy nonsense like that. You know, it's 
right. insane that teachers have to strike over having smaller class sizes and having funding in our schools for the things that students need. Um, so I would say that this strike has very much at the forefront a class struggle character, and and it's just so important for being able to be successful in the long term, but also being able to develop members along the way to recognize that they are a part of a working class struggle. Um, this is not going to be just a one strike thing and then it's all over. I mean, when you organize a union, you're organizing it for the long haul. And this really is inspiring teachers and unionists all over the country. I think this is really just the next step in hopefully a resurgence in American labor. Um, so the, the fact that they're developing the consciousness of members along the way is, is truly a, an incredible part of this action as well. Well said. I mean, I think the message discipline that you see coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 or 2015, rather, that primary campaign is really resonating. And it's one that socialists are taking much further and to the grassroots, if you will, uh, the war against the millionaires and the billionaires is not one that you know is merely to be waged at the level of federal and party politics and electoralism, but it's one that yeah. needs to be waged in the communities. And uh, with the trade unions and the point of production front and center, uh, good old-fashioned class politics, which as we talk about on Dead Pundits, is always already that thing which people talk about intersectional. And I think that's one of the most inspiring things about these teacher strikes as well is that it, it really demonstrates that, uh, you know, that uh, contrary to the way that I think some of the more opportunistic uh, ruling class permeations of liberalism would have it, would have you believe this kind of uh, faux, phony – uh, you know, progressivism of the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, what these strikes show and the people who are at the forefronts, who are, who are doing the work and who are, are, are leading the charge on the picket lines inside and outside the classrooms are, are you know, disproportionately women and women of color uh, on the front lines of these strikes. Talk, talk to us a little bit about um, that dynamic in a, in a city that's as, that's as racialized as, uh, as L.A., yeah, absolutely. I mean, unions are some of the most diverse and integrated institutions in American life. And that was so clear in Los Angeles when every sign, every speech, um, sort of every part of the strike is bilingual. Um, English and Spanish is really a huge part of um, the character of this strike. I remember meeting a parent organizer on the ground um, who is a, a crucial parent organizer who is, um, you know, she speaks some English, but really uh, very dominant in Spanish. And the fact that she's able to become a, a like recognizable citywide leader in this strike as, um, as a Spanish speaker uh, goes to show that I think that this is like a a, a struggle across the working class um, in the diverse working class. And so, um, yeah, it's it, it was incredible to see the picket lines uh, are are beautiful. And it, it's just um, bringing people together in this common struggle is is what it's all about. Um, and I'll bring it back to even something you said about earlier about raising morale Um a part of raising morale in addition to us delivering tacos and, and, and fundraising and sending solidarity photos. I mean, these teachers are having fun on strike and they are getting yeah, yeah. down and yeah. dancing and playing music. You Just, have to, I mean, it's rainy and it's shitty outside. Like you have to enjoy yourself out there and have some camaraderie. And it was really great to see yeah. those scenes. Yeah. On uh, on Tuesday, we had this massive concert where they're playing Latin music and just everyone is getting down. And it's just like it's 
it's insane. It, it was so much fun. I mean, I packed a lot into 40 hours and I'm still pretty exhausted from it, but I, I really take away a lot of lessons about how these types of struggles and these types of movements can, can unify people around a common idea and a common struggle that I think is so important um, in America, given the state of the working class, given how diverse it is. Um, we need to have an ability to, to get over um, you know, the ways in which the working class has been separated from each other through racism and sexism and, and other forms of, of division. The union and the struggle is what brings people together to see, in fact, we we are all on the same side in these issues and we need to put away the things and, and not tap into the things that we, you know, like to think that maybe we're better than one another because we get a little bit of something for, you know, for this part of our identity. But instead, no, the only way that we can benefit is if we band together with people across the diverse working class. Very, very well said. We have to fight that scarcity mindset that neoliberal austerity instills inside of us, thinking that we need to uh, you know, trample over one another in various ways for, for status and for relative privilege inside of an ever-shrinking pie. And we need to start taking back what was rightfully ours from the billionaire class. And this is a really excellent way to get that kicked off for 2019. So let's go ahead and take a quick break. We're going to take a quick music break here. I'm going to, I'm going to rope uh, Justin Kirkland into this chat. And we're going to talk about the prospects of a Denver strike in the last half of this show. Thanks everybody for watching, particularly the people who are watching live. Go ahead and hit us with some questions or some comments and we'll try to get to those towards the end of the show. But uh, enjoy this little music break while we get Justin Kirkland in on the call. All right, and we are back. Thanks everybody for holding tight during that little break. We are now joined for the second half of the show by a teacher out of Denver. He's a 15-year veteran he is a member of the trade union out there in Denver, Colorado, and they're in the midst of some heated negotiations and a real pivotal phase of bargaining, and we're going to talk much more about that in the coming last half of the episode. Mr. Justin Kirkland, thanks so much for joining us on DPS Radio. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Adam, and thank you for having me. I just uh, have to get this out of way. It's always been on my bucket list, so, uh, you know, f- uh, first-time caller, long-time listener, so... Uh, <laughs> hey. <laughs> had to throw that out there that's good that's good i i i, I take it as a, a point of honor uh that that people like yourselves actually listen to my uh blathering ass on a weekly basis uh it's it's you guys who give my show any any of the weight that it has and so i'm, I'm totally i'm really glad to, to have you on what i'm trying to say in a real uh sheepish way is the pleasure's all mine so uh oh. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about your activity as a as a rank and file uh, trade union activist in Denver. What is the deal? Talk, give us a, a very short uh, kind of a biographical sketch so we can kind of place you in the broader struggle here, and then tell us uh, about the bargaining as it's gone on for for thus far uh, in the specific in your specific context, and then we'll speak a little bit about how that how that slots into the broader struggle we're seeing across the country. Yeah, sounds great. So uh, I, as I mentioned before, I got started about 15 years ago uh, in education. Um, I served for about uh, four years uh, in elementary education. And uh, then I actually uh, got a uh, grant through, uh, you know, a government socialist taxpayer sponsored program, right, Uh, to go and uh, get a a specialized degree, which uh, was a master's degree in uh, basically a combination of special education and uh, English language acquisition. Um, 
I've been teaching, uh, like I said, for uh, after that, I would move over into the special education world and work there for about the next 11 years. Um, I have been with Denver Public Schools for about five years and um, uh, been a DCTA member for, uh, I'm sorry, to, to back up, it's a Denver Classroom Teachers Association member mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, past five years as well. Um, I actually, uh, one of the, the, the many ways that actually uh, special education teachers in general get attracted um, to the union, even um, beyond any uh, ideological aspects, is that um, special education teachers get uh, sued quite a bit. Um, mm. They are actually the uh, most frequently uh, sued occupation within education. And, uh, you know, either for uh, providing services or for failure to provide services. Um, and, and so many, got our, many of us got our start uh, simply uh, going to the union because that offers extensive uh, liability insurance. Sure, uh, you know, sure. Basically, cover, basically covers you in case anything happens. Um, but, uh, you know, beyond that, I've, I've always been, had an interest in, in kind of the activist side of things. Um, you know, it doesn't take long especially within the teaching field to uh, see what a raw deal a lot of the students are getting and, and just how much uh, that's basically based on class and, and which zip code is born into. Um, so uh, that's, you know, always just kind of furthered my, my, my passion in the field. Um, excellent. Excellent. So you are a 15 year veteran there. Talk to us a little bit about you. It's my understanding that you're a, a strike captain, uh, in your local and you'll be involved heavily in those strike actions. Talk to us a little bit about the bargaining process thus far and what kind of, uh, privatization and neoliberalism, uh, those drives, uh, that, that you faced in your city and in your state, uh, across the board, Colorado, unlike, you know, New York and unlike California is a right to work state. Although after Janice, that distinction is becoming more and more flimsy. Uh, although the legacy, uh, of, of a right to work state, uh, means that you're a little further along the, uh, descent into hell, if you will, perhaps than California, and New York. So talk to us about, uh, what, what that's like organizing in a state such as Colorado. Yeah, that's uh, it. It's really is a kind of a special level of hell in Colorado. Uh, not only are we a right to work state, and, and you know, for for anybody who doesn't isn't familiar, uh, newer listener might not be familiar with that term. You know, it's a very, very Orwellian term. Uh, it is not a Bernie Bernie Sanders style guaranteed job. It is you know your your right to not join a union and your right to uh, basically not have union representation. Um, so that's really what it's about. Um, in addition, Colorado has uh, a lot of extra anti-teacher uh, laws, especially. Um, they've kind of piloted them throughout. Uh, ALEC has really been instrumental in, in using Colorado as a laboratory to uh, really come up with some of the shittiest aspects of neoliberal, neoliberal education reform and, and ship them out uh, to the rest of the, the country. We've been kind of the testing ground first. Right, right. Just to clarify there, ALEC stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. It does exactly what you've just said. It's a right-wing kind of neoliberal formation that uh, essentially writes, um, my understanding, sort of has ready-made templates of bills and state-level legislation for these these 
dumbass, you know, uh, know nothing hayseeds. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a hayseed myself. I shouldn't speak uh, <laughs> ill of the hayseeds, but you know, the, you know the type I'm talking about—the kind of empty suits who find themselves in the Republican Party primarily, uh, but also many Democrats across the country at these state and local legislatures. They're just yeah. a- Alex sort of hands them these bill templates. They slap their name on it. In some cases, forget to change up the wording, and then it, then it becomes law. So it sounds like Colorado has had a particularly insidious. Um, uh, altercation with this uh, Alec legacy, it sounds. Yes, like uh, for example, one of the, the one of the bit most impo- more important laws is uh, uh, regards in Colorado regarding uh, union representation uh, in schools is uh, um, in Colorado you are only you can o- union protections basically can only kick in after you are um, after you've served for three years. Uh, in other words. Um, at any point, uh, you know, you're kind of got a one-year contract at a time for your first three years with any district. Um, and at that, what that means is at the end of it, uh, they can non-renew your, your contract for any reason whatsoever. Um, they don't have to provide a reason at all. Uh, they, they don't have to give justification or anything. There's no due process rights or anything like that. Um, and that's a big distinction, especially from California, uh, for example, where even a first-year teacher is has right to due process and a right to um, union representation surrounding that. Um, so you do have, I mean, you can join the union within your first three years, but uh, the problem is you really can't um, access the rights. So it's kind of, I mean, they're paper rights. They're kind of meaningless, um, which, you know, really... Uh, it makes it very make it very difficult to organize new members, and especially um, in our modern circumstances, where uh, I think it's approximately forty to fifty percent of teachers uh, quit uh, after you know within the first three years of teaching. Um, <laughs> that, that's a right. that's a great deal of them that aren't getting any protection at all during that time. Right, right. So let's talk. Let's talk explicitly about the the situation that Denver teachers find themselves in. It's my sure. understanding that this weekend is going to be a really decisive moment. Uh, there's going to be a, a strike authorization vote. Did I get the language there? Because as we as as I've found out, very <laughs> in the school of hard knocks going on strike, and I'm sure you two fine gentlemen have uh, known all too well in your careers as as union men. Uh, the 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 stages and the steps can be quite arduous, but they're also very crucial as to how they're laid out step-by-step. Step. Is this a strike authorization vote? And if so, uh, what does that mean for, for where your union stands? Yes, that is correct. Uh, this is not, you know, unlike uh, some of the, the the wildcat strikes that we saw in West Virginia and in Oklahoma, this is a, you know, full, full legal process strike. Um, so what's been going on is, you know, for the last year, uh, we have been negotiating a contract. Um, our contract actually expired uh, last year, um, you know, approximately one year ago. And we have been, uh, they, at, at that time, they signed a one-year extension of the contract, um, just kind of a one-year. Uh, and, and a lot of the logic behind it was that um, there were some very mixed feelings within uh, uh, the union about it. Uh, but the reality was, uh, you know, there, there was a, at that time, there was the walkouts and the strikes going on in West Virginia and Oklahoma, um, and a lot of activism around it. Uh, DPS cho- DCTA chose not to push it at that time because they really hadn't organized much ahead of time. They, you know, they were kind of blindsided by all the activism that was going on around the country. Um, so we did not capitalize on that during the time. Also, there was a, a hope, um, a kind of naive hope, um, that... Uh, the voters in Colorado might approve a tax increase uh, in order to better fund education. Um, again, one of the many special hells of Colorado is that we have a uh, something called the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. Uh, this has locked in, that law has two purposes. It locks in tax rates 
um, locked them in when the when the bill was passed, and that was over 30 years ago. Or I'm sorry, over the when the amendment was uh, uh, adopted in our constitution, which was over 30 years ago. Um, it locked tax rates in. Um, you know, it brought down property tax rates, and at the same time. Uh, it made it so that any t- tax increase would have to go uh, to get, and get voter approval. Um, so there, had, there would have to be, you know, voter proof. During the the result of it has been that there has only been two tax increases ever approved in Colorado since then that the voters have approved. It's Jeez. it's not 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 proved to be wildly popular. Yeah. Um, so there was hope that we might actually that with uh, you know people turning out with the activism going on around the country uh, with the uh, you know, a real, you know, endorsement of the Democratic Party in Colorado with, uh, you know, everything else going on that we might be able to get a tax increase passed. Um, that was Amendment 65 that was up in, um, up for a vote in, in, you know, in 2018, and it failed like almost every tax increase has. Right, right. Uh, even though it was a progressive tax, it would have uh, affected virtually, I don't think it affected anybody who made under about $100,000, um, you know, and it had minor increases over that, but it, it got rejected again. Right. As we have seen with uh, AOC pushing that 70% tax rate, uh, even longtime governors like Scott Walker uh, can't don't seem to understand uh, a progressive tax system and how that actually works. And so even selling a tax on uh, you know high, relative high earners who are making at least six figures uh, can prove to be difficult in in a in a country where euphemism like taxpayer and bill of rights <laughs> comes to yes. mean something very insidious and very different it has a kind of neoliberal logic intertwined with it so talk to us about the strike authorization vote what what's the likelihood sure. that this is going to go down and uh, what will be the significance there of joining your uh, comrades uh, in in LA and elsewhere on strike uh, at the same time at the beginning of 2019. Yeah, well, you know, it seemed for a while like we were making progress. Um, I, I, in fact, had been kind of reporting back to my team um, that I felt that you know I had reason for optimism because uh, we, you know, there was there was a variety of things going on. I mean, the the uh, you know really the the focus of our strike has has been much more narrow than the UTLA strike. Um, it's really been around cost of living increases. Um, Ours is, a, is more narrowly focused on, on pay, but there's a, another aspect of it that, um, that's pretty important, which is also that uh, odd, this is one of the very odd facts about Colorado is that um, Colorado itself has been very conservative about, uh, try, about raising taxes. Denver itself is a very, very odd little spot where voters absolutely love taxes. And I am not kidding you at all on this. Um, it is actually noted by political scientists as being like one of the few places in the country where uh, the, the the approval rating for the mayor goes up every time he proposes a tax increase. Um, it's yeah, it's it's very odd. Um, there's only been a couple that have failed in Denver um, in my lifetime. A couple of tax increases, um, and one of them was a voluntary tax to build a UFO uh, welcoming center. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody's got to do it. Damage yeah, testing, exactly. You know. Exactly. You know, I, I voted for it, so don't you know? Don't blame me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah when the over, when the overlords arrive, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so anyhow, yeah. so to, to get back to it, uh, one of the Denver Denver voters have consistently um, voted to increase uh, their property taxes and and do what are called mill levy overrides in order to increase the budget of Denver public schools uh, quite quite frequently. Um, they have also uh, approved about twenty years ago. They approved um, uh, something called ProComp. And ProComp was supposed to be an extra um, bonus pay, actually, basically for for teachers. And um, basically, it was, the idea was to try to entice teachers to the district um, 
and to uh, make it so that DPS would be one of the better paid districts in Colorado. Uh, one of the frequent problems that they'd had was that a lot of teachers, as they got experienced, um, would move over to our neighbor, Cherry Creek, and get uh, you know an average of 10, 50, 10 to $15,000 pay raise. Um, so ProComp was negotiated and was um, agreed to, and, and the voters approved it, and um, uh, you know, DCTA was part of it. Uh, part of the push uh, to get it passed. And, you know, a lot of it was uh, just to add more money into into teachers' salaries. Well, what happened uh, in in the meantime is that, you know, when the, the financial crash hit, we had uh, the, the superintendent at the time was a man named Michael Bennett. Don't know if you recognize that name. Mm, yeah. Who is Michael Bennett? And how does that uh, intertwine into uh, today's struggles? Well, Michael Bennett is, uh, he got, he's cut his, he was originally a hedge fund manager, uh, an insurance guy. And, uh, you know, now he is, uh, he, he, he would be the superintendent of Denver Public Schools for a while. Uh, he has since moved on uh, to become a U.S. senator for Colorado, <laughs> which he got uh, by uh, having the previous senator uh, uh, retire, or I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but basically he was appointed by the governor. Right, right. Hedge fund so, guy gone. He just got the itch for public service, Justin. Why you got to yeah. be so cynical? He just you know, he just wanted to do he just wanted to do right by the by the poor kids of Colorado, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no um, ulterior so he, no motives there. So what did he do and how did that lead to uh, the impasse that you guys find yourselves in today? So what Michael Bennett uh, decided was that he was going to re that what the voters had really wanted was um, uh, an incentive package for teachers. Um, so he ended up instituting a system whereby the base pay for teachers uh, went down, um, but then they would qualify for what he called all sorts of special incentives, right? It's, it's classic, you know, attempt to let's, let's get teachers to make better choices. Of course, right, the foundation of any neoliberal, great neoliberal reform. Um, so they're going to incentivize all these things. And it was supposed to he institute this system of sort of micromanagement of it, you know, that if you're, uh, but one of the big ones was, uh, you know, tying, increasingly tying those bonuses to increases in student test scores, right? Because that's, right, right. Uh, that has been the movement uh, with, with the neoliberals forever, especially in education is need to test everything, need to measure everything, and uh, then, uh, you know, base, base pay accordingly so that we're making sure to only reward those who uh, are, are doing right. And, not, and of course, those who do right, uh, you know, just coincidentally always seem to work in rich zip codes. Yeah, funny that. Yeah, funny funny that. how that works, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, Michael Bennett had uh, completely revised uh, the structure. It was very unpopular at the time. Um, however, the... Uh, and, um, the DCTA had opposed it. Um, they were actually thinking of, of striking around it. This was a good 15 years ago, uh, to put that in context. But, you know, it was in the middle of the financial crash. Um, you know, the economy in Colorado had tanked. It was a rough time. It wasn't uh, the time for a public uh, public sector trade union to, to make a stink. It, so, that's exactly it. And it, it was also, it was hard to, it would it would have been easy to break. I mean, I, I was applying for a job at one time. Um, uh, I applied for a fifth grade job during at one point where there were 50 other applicants for a single job. Right. I, I think that's some really crucial context there because I think what we're seeing now is we're not only coming out of the sort of like political doldrums and the defeats of the Great Recession and the sovereign debt crisis that uh, emerged thereafter, uh, but the, the public uh, consciousness is, is ready and willing to start fighting. I think, you know, the general rhetoric, uh, having participated in a public education, a public sector strike in 2013, 2014 myself, the it was still a little bit too early back then, 
You know, a lot of these private sector types would, you know, see us at various uh, marches or picket line events or what have you. And, you know, the attitude would be, well, we're eating shit. Why should you be any different? And I mean, Ryan, you can jump in here and give us your experience with that uh, kind of uh, common sense and the way in which this moment is a way for us to start breaking free of that sort of like race to the bottom, lowest common denominator phenomenon. Is that something that you think is is really resonating with the educators across the country? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in New York City, like we're relatively well paid compared to other areas of the country. However, when you compare it to cost of living, like we're really not that better off. So, you know, starting salary in New York City for a teacher when you have your master's degree is $54,000. But at the same time, you might be paying upwards of like 1500 to 2000 for a crappy apartment somewhere. So, Uh, At the end of the day, like, and similarly to what we were hearing about in Denver, I mean, turnover is pretty nuts here and and teachers really aren't lasting for a very long time. And so school districts are incentivized or schools are incentivized of hiring new hires, which might be like half the cost of a veteran teacher. And so we're rapidly seeing how teachers, um, the average, geez, I forget the year, but I want to say it was the average New York City teacher was uh, a third year teacher at this point. Um, Just like there's a a deficiency of teachers. So they're getting people into the shop, but really they just can't hold on to people for the long time. So yeah, I mean, that's the situation that we're in, but we're seeing that, no, we don't have to sort of be given the the dregs. We don't have to be given the the crap and we can can fight for a better life for ourselves. Um, And especially as a millennial, you know, it it just the labor movement makes sense to someone who you know i was politicized coming of age seeing 9-11 the wars in iraq and then the recession having happening back to back and making sense of the world and recognizing that like you know what the status quo and what i was guaranteed to get by you know going to school and going to college is going to be pretty crappy and you know I'm of the generation and we're of the generation that we're having a crappier standard of living than our parents had. And so the only way that we can make it better is, is to fight. And so we kind of have to go up against both the common sense that in New York, we have it all right. We have to sort of like uh, highlight how um, we really are in a moment of crisis. And then especially tying that to the crisis of our students are dealing. And second of all, we, yeah, we do have to go against the the common sense that in New York state it's against the law to strike uh, by breaking you know, the section of the Taylor law that forbids public sector strikes. And we have to, you know, push back against that. And so uh, trying to find moments of, of rupture, whether that be within uh, union conversations or within uh, uh, politicians who are running for office, who we can get on record supporting our right to strike, um, that that's one of the ways in which we're we're trying to, to create consciousness and to get people realizing that um, another way of running things is is possible. And finally, I will just say, like, again, the the reason why UTLA is so exciting is it's just a concrete example that we can talk to coworkers about and say, hey, look over in L.A. They have pretty similar conditions to us. And you know what they're doing about it? They organized a massive strike to fight back. And teachers in New York City, even those who are not yet union activists, kind of get it. And they realize, like, yeah, we're facing the issue of uh, big class sizes and also charterization and, and having lacking of funding for for services in the schools. So when we can get our coworkers to take solidarity photos and even hearing 
um, going to, you know, I went to a, a special ed training and, and hearing from even non-classroom teachers, just, yes, we support the UTLA strike. It's so important for all of us. I think there's just a lot of room for development and growth there. So I, I'm incredibly optimistic about our ability to organize in this moment, even if it seems that we're light years behind some of the more exciting actions, including even Denver now. And so I'm, I'm really excited to watch what goes on with y'all. Well, thanks, Ryan. And it does sound like we're facing some similar issues. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned there about how it's not necessarily that the pay is that low, although for uh, relatively, you know, Denver's pay is much lower than even its surrounding districts. We're not even in the top five for the state, even though we have some of the most uh, generously funded you know, the taxpayers are willing to, to generously fund us. Um, you know, it's just a huge disconnect there. But also, as you mentioned, uh, we've also had the same thing of uh, you know, really high rising uh, housing costs. Um, you know, in Denver, it's, it's been the type of, of development that's happened where there's been a lot of older buildings um, and a lot of older stuff that's been destroyed. Um, so it's not actually, it's not like they're building new houses and opening up even the housing market. I mean, they're just destroying the affordable places to live and replacing them with places that are unaffordable um, for teachers to live. Um, and one of the, you know, the, one of the reasons why the district has a, such a high turnover, you know, and not, not only is, I think, a, a feeling of lack of respect and, and people not being able to afford it, but also, you know, simply needing to move out of the Denver area because they, uh, they're not being paid a living wage. Right, right. They can't afford to live there, moving further and further out to the suburbs and then wondering, why am I making this commute? I'll just work out here or go elsewhere. I think exactly. you know, there's an interesting sort of like uh, uh, this delicious, just to put on my uh, real kind of my nerdy, heady theoretical, heady theoretician hat for just one second, then I'll take it off, I promise. But like there's Keep this delicious little dialectical inversion at work here. And I, I want to spell that out just so we move away from the jargon immediately. It's that it, on, on the one hand, for the past 20 years, as, as we, both of you have been outlining, the, the move to the flexibilization of the teaching career, you see this with Teach for America injecting uh, these inner city schools, particularly heavily racialized and inner city schools, poor underfunded districts with uh, you know poor tax bases because of the way that the rich have been absolutely bleeding these uh, localities dry and depriving them of their tax dollars and, and so on and so forth for decades. Anyway, Teach for America has been injecting these districts with these young idealistic students who go in there and you know with perhaps the best of intentions uh, to get a, to get a couple of years of teaching on their resume and then move on to the nonprofit sector or or uh, put it on their CV to go to law school or what have you. Uh, I certainly don't mean to denigrate idealistic youngsters out there uh, with the best of intentions, but they were certainly used for a very cynical task, which is to break teachers' unions and to de-skill the profession. And uh, that that has produced uh, what both of you have mentioned there in, in New York City, if that figure is right, and I have no reason to believe it's not at least remotely, or at least somewhat accurate, is the average teacher has three years experience in, in, a, in a district uh, like New York City. And you see that all across the country, both anecdotally and you know, it bears it out in statistics as well is that people are leaving the profession. Longtime veterans are not getting supported and they're becoming more and more uh, marginalized uh, as, as they go on, which is decreasing union density and that kind of veteran strength that you need at the point of production, right? However, as you just laid out, Ryan, it's the case now that uh, this is working against the ruling class and their neoliberal agenda because the people who are entering the field, they might, they may only have two to three years of education experience under their belts, but they have no other choice but to fight. 
And so there isn't that kind of stagnant uh, bureaucratic aspect of the profession that might keep the young rowdy radicals out of the fight like maybe uh, might have been the case in other sectors that were kind of more business unionism uh, kind of seniority structures that were in place in the 60s and 70s without going too uh, too deep into the weeds there. Uh, but talk, talk a little bit about the composition of your union, Justin. Uh, the age range, you yourself uh, are a bit of a veteran at 15 years. But talk about the kind of movers and shakers and who's really pushing uh, this, this strike in that city of Denver. Well, you know, it's at, it's at all levels. We actually have DCTA. Uh, membership is at an all-time high now. Um, we have a lot more younger members. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not going to even pretend to know some of the demographics of this. Um, so, right. <laughs> so I can only kind of give you the, the impression. I know that some of the, you know, some of the, the people who are kind of the key uh, movers and shakers within DCTA as far as, and by that I mean basically, uh, you know, these, these brave souls who are basically, you know, doing the good fight of putting in a lot of time, a lot of their spare time um, to doing union roles. Uh, you know, they're working full-time jobs and then they're out there bargaining. Um, you know, they're like the bargaining team right now um, is, is, is out there. There's one guy who's our full-time union president, and that's pretty much it, you know, as far as uh, actual paid union representation. Uh, so the rest are just volunteers. Um, they do tend to be, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've had more veterans in the bargaining team, but I know we're definitely seeing some younger people as far as uh, you know, people are part- participating in the, especially in the, the pro-comp transition board that I'm part of too, which uh, oversees the, uh, the, the allocation of the, Basically, the DCTA representation for the allocation of, of, of funds for our incentive pays and so on. So we're getting more, like I said, we're getting more in there. And I definitely see a lot uh, of more younger members. Um, but, you know, it, it's a mixed bag. And, and like I said, without the, it, it's definitely always a challenge here without being able to, you know, represent, you know, when you, the, the reality is if you're, a, if you're a union member and you're not covered uh, you know, if you're a DCTA member and you are a young teacher starting off your career in your first three years, you mean non-renewed for any reason, uh, you know, putting having union activism is putting a target on your back. Right, right, right. I think like, you know, without fetishizing or romanticizing the kind of uh, upcoming generation, which is always a, a kind of it's always a faux pas, right? We want to avoid that, the avoid the appeal of generational politics. What we can say is this race to the bottom has produced a situation wherein all all workers are starting to feel like it's 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 fight uh, or die, perhaps. And so yeah. this extreme uh, neoliberal agenda that's been pursued for the past three decades is really has really put these the, 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 their backs against the wall in a way that we're starting to bear fruit from. Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts on, on that in, in New York City? Do you see people with their backs up against the wall um, just desperate to make any kind of, of change? Let's talk about how this uh, – let's parlay this conversation, if you, if you will, into the Democratic Party primary race for 2020. What does this mean for electoral politics and the prospects thereof when people – are striking and fighting in blue states and in blue cities. Uh, where do we go from there? You know, it's it's one thing in these red states to throw the bums out, but what do you do when you have uh, Democrats uh, at the helm of this uh, neoliberal austerity agenda? 
Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. There's a lot that I would like to cover that I hope I can tie all together. So I guess if there's like two things that I hope to convince the listeners, it's the value of the rank and file strategy and the value of Bernie 2020. And I see both of these as being entirely important and complementary to the work that we do to build class consciousness and class struggle in America in 2019. And so I just want to put it right on the table now. I am not an electoralist. I also want to put it on the table right now that I'm I'm not a syndicalist, meaning that I do not think we can vote our way to socialism. I do not think that just by going to the ballot box, we're somehow going to be able to, to get the world we want. But simultaneously, I think to to not engage in elections where the majority of people engage in politics uh, as their only way of engaging in politics would be incredibly foolish. And I, I see the the meetup of both a Bernie 2020 campaign and a teacher strike wave being like the best case scenario for our ability to build people's consciousnesses and to turn them into movers and shakers and organizers. And I, I'm just so excited. I think of back in 2016 when the Verizon workers and CWA were on strike and Bernie would bring striking workers up on stage to talk about why their struggle was so important. And we already see him doing this now before he's even declared the fact that he is not only tweeting and, and posting his support for UTLA teachers, but sending out mass emails today connecting to their strike fund. He's reposting Jacobin articles from Eric Blanc and Megan Day that are pretty much in an explicit Marxist interpretation of the strike. And he's just finding whatever way that he can be most valuable um, for building that movement. And so I, I do want to say I, I understand the people who might be skeptical of Bernie or skeptical of electoral politics, that there's this fear that it'll, it'll sap away energy from where we need to be doing work at the union level and at the workplace level. But I just want us to reconceptualize how we engage with a campaign and how we relate to it. So not taking people away from their strikes and their union work to go, you know, door knock for Bernie, but in fact, see that we can use this campaign as a way for us to talk about our strikes and our struggles. So I think it's just the best time to be a, a socialist unionist right now. And I really just can't wait for the campaign. And lastly, to, to just bring it back again to why I think considering, especially for our younger listeners, considering becoming a teacher is more than just politically strategic. I, as a civil servant, have a better cost of living than many of my friends at this point in time who, you know, even if we all thought we were going to go on to, to have pretty good lives and, you know, maybe some of them are creative types and have jobs in in uh, artsy or sort of tech fields the fact that i have stability and i have a pension compared to like none of my friends and i have the ability to to have steady work it creates an ability to organize because i just i have that stability and so i i would really recommend for people who are trying to think what is the best way to to build our movement and to, to be involved in this work do you think you you do well with kids? Like, do you like talking about ideas with kids? Can you see yourself being a teacher for the long haul, not just for a year or two like TFA, but do you want to be in the shop for, for decades and, and to help build this work and, and to help build our unions? If so, I would seriously consider becoming a teacher. But, you know, the same could be said I, for the strategic value and, and similar uh, lifestyle for becoming a nurse or, hey, even becoming a, a UPS package driver if you're, you know, feel that, you don't want to talk about ideas all day, but would rather be uh, more physically stimulated. 
all of these sectors are really important for building the American labor movement and especially connecting it to our movement for democratic socialism. So I think that those two things, the Bernie campaign and the rank and file strategy should be where we are looking for the next two years for us to play a pivotal role because I think they can completely complement each other. So I hope that answers your question. And I definitely got what I wanted to say. Out. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That was an excellent call to the barricade. I love this. It's a, it's a really great way to begin to wrap up the show and kind of bring it on home. We don't just talk about ideas and talk about dusty books on dead pundit society, uh, contrary to uh, popular belief or popular perception. We always like to bring it home and give a strategic lead for people to go into the world and actually make a change and, and work towards a socialist transition. And uh, man, you really summed it up really well there. Just one way, again, I, God, I always end up in this managerial buzz speak, but uh, it's like, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that scarcity mindset, right? <laughs> Forget about the way, you know, these self-help gurus talk about a scarcity mindset. There is a real scarcity mindset at play, I think, in in the kind of socialist imaginary wherein, wherein we believe that, as has been the case for so many decades, we're dealing with a fixed pie of socialist activists. So that if we advocate for one strategy, say a certain kind of electoral strategy, it necessarily pulls people away from other uh, other avenues of you know socialist organizing, and that might have been the case over the past uh, several decades. In fact, that was the case. There were only but so many socialists to go around. We had to be very careful about where we exerted our energies. But I think it's absolutely the case now more than ever in our lifetimes, for sure, that the pie is growing. And we, we need to break out of the scarcity mindset. We need to start talking about not only just creating new socialists. We're not even doing that work. The socialists are coming to us. I mean, let's be honest about that. I don't know about you guys, but did you, come, did you become a socialist because a DSA organizer like canvassed your door? Or did you become a socialist because material conditions sort of drove you in, in, into, that, um, into that harsh reality, <laughs> that harsh political realization? And then a, a group like DSA or other socialist group was able to kind of incorporate you into their activity. Um, I think for the vast majority of us, it was the latter. And so the importance there, as you as you rightly uh, raise, Ryan, is to be able to incorporate those people um, in really useful and immediately uh, productive ways. And if that means knocking on doors and canvassing for politicians every now and then, uh, I think that's that's a, a perfectly um, a perfectly synergistic use of people's energies and talents. There I go again. With the buzzword, man, I swear to God, I swear I haven't been listening to Tony Robbins like all week or some <laughs> shit like that. Like this is, yeah, I've been I've been practicing my power pose uh, all week. Anyway, Justin, my man, you're over there in Denver, slightly less, uh, slight. Let me rephrase that: slightly different kind of liberal zeitgeist at play in those crunchy mountain pot smoking folks you got up there in Denver. You guys are too happy. You ski too much. You're just too relaxed. That's the problem. We, yeah, these coasters are stressed. We're stressed out, man. We have a different kind of uh, political, uh, you know, attitude. But we talked a little bit about this uh, earlier today before we went on the air. The fact, as you rightly raised, that there is perhaps no other, um, no other profession that more comprehensively captures what I try to convey about the centrality of relating to regular ass people than the education sector. And you raise that point in the fact that a Bernie, a Bernie 2020 campaign would do wonders in reaching the people who don't spend all day reading Marx. 
uh, nor will they probably ever. But that's okay because a Bernie campaign can electrify them and get them interested in in, in the socialist politics that they probably always already were were interested in, at least in a knee jerk level. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's so interesting to hear the perspective of you, the perspective of Ryan. Uh, you know, at the risk of sounding like the old fogey, like back in my day there, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I'll have to go there a bit. You know, honestly. Um, you know, I'm somebody who was, uh, I was kind of, I was kind of a red diaper baby from the get go. Uh, you know, my, I was somebody who my, my dad did hand me the, the communist manifesto at age 14 and said, this is going to explain a lot about stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> That's great. I'm, je- I'm uh, intensely jealous, but I don't even know how I would have reacted in those days. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, the problem is, uh, you know, I, I had that aspiration, but I mean, it, it, it's been one long, uh, slow contraction of, of hope and promise. Um, so, you know, I'm somebody who who saw these limited capabilities, and especially really coming of age during the the Clinton years, um, saw just this this contraction of this vision of what uh, society was going to entail and what we could do as a country uh, and what we could do as a society, and and you know this very limited vision there, this this contracting of the American dream, really, and this idea that we you know uh, of anything larger, um, and to this very narrow capitalist, you know, very driven. And this neoliberal mindset, um, you know, and then to, to so I had like many, I think of my generation had really just kind of given up hope. And after, uh, especially after the great recession, you know, we saw something like Obama and it's like, you know, this isn't great, but this is as good as it gets. So right, you right. Know, let's, let's just, you know, be satisfied with the crumbs that are thrown to us. And, uh, you know, and I think that was even to connect this back to the, Den- the Denver teacher strike. This is actually what, what Michael Bennett, Bennett had done to us a long time ago, which is said, uh, you know, basically you guys are going to, this is how we're going to take, we're going to restructure your pay. Um, you're not going to know how you're paid. You're going to have, it's going to be very mysterious to you. It's going to be very uh, opaque and non-transparent. Um, and you'll have to work for our incentives and you'll have no job security. And uh, he basically told the, the union at that time, uh, you know, take it or leave it. If you, if you don't recognize this contract, then I'm not recognizing the union anymore. And you guys are going to work without a contract. And we'll all be at, at will employees from here on out. And at the time, you know, it was a great recession. So you can get away with that. Um, and then to, you know, once things have, the, the economy has kind of turned around and things are better, uh, you know, we have a lot more bargaining power now. Um, uh, there's actually teachers, the, the, the neoliberals made teaching such a horrible job that we have a teacher shortage in Colorado. So we actually have a little bit of room to actually um, push for some demands. Right. Um, but anyway, to got off, got off track there trying to, to wrap things back in. Because, no, I think uh, that's actually really important. Let me jump in to see if you can clarify this for us a little bit better, because what we have here is we have a meeting of the of the generations. I mean, we're, yeah. we're all fairly close enough in age for sure to be able to right. to understand each other culturally. But the way that time has, has accelerated in late capitalism in a really uh, a ridiculous sort of way since the neoliberal era in the, in the 1980s, it's such that people who are just a, are just a decade apart from one another and coming of age could have such a substantially different kind of uh, formative experience. And what you've spelled out there, it strikes me as more of the kind of Gen X experience of radicalization that, that having lived much more, I mean, we certainly remember in, in me being a little older than Ryan, uh, certainly remember the Clinton era in the 1990s. Uh, but but it wasn't a formative part of our say our career path and and the kind of world that we faced 
as adults having to be self-sufficient in, in the economy and in society. And so what you're describing is, is a much uh, – is, is a different path to socialism, but it's one uh, that uh, is, is just as interesting in, in such that many of the teachers and many of the people in our organizations will have come to socialism that way rather than the sort of uh, prototypical sort of millennial way. Yeah, and a lot of us had given up hope, and the thing that had given, and and the only thing that restored the hope, you know, what uh, I hate to say, messianic, but it was Bernie. Watching the Bernie wave, watching, uh, you know, I went and I, I was I caucused for Bernie uh, uh, back in the day, back in 2016, first time I'd ever caucused in my life. Um, but you know, there were all the always these really boring events there. Uh, from what I'd heard, there was almost no turnout. When I showed up at my local middle school uh, for that caucus, there was a line out the door around the block. And let me tell you, those folks were not coming out there to vote, to cast their vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Bernie won Colorado easily. Um, and, you know, it, I, I even heard people, it, the moment I, I started to really feel like things were, were changing in this country is when I started hearing people at work talking about Bernie and how much they loved Bernie. Um, you know, and, and people who honestly weren't that political, uh, talking about how this, you know, how, the, how excited they were to support him. Um, so, uh, you know, just to bring it back, it, this moment that we're seeing in time, I think literally would not have been possible without Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, it, I, I just, it's unimaginable to me that we would actually uh, be at this point. Or, or and when I hear, uh, you know, Ryan talk, uh, about these calls to the barricades. I mean, it's just, first of all, it brings me such amazing hope and it's, it's wonderful to hear these things, but I just can't imagine. You know, I, I never heard anything like that before Bernie. And I, I, I don't think I would have heard those words uh, from somebody, from so many people if, if it hadn't been for Bernie. I, I agree. And I will say even a couple of years ago, I mean, I was on the left and maybe I, I had hope, but it was like a naive hope. I, right. I mean, came to the left through campus organizing at a time like, you know, 2011, 2012, when Occupy was the main thing. I mean, I kind of jumped to like the most ultra conclusions because I didn't actually think the left could have power. I thought it was sort of a, a uh, having the right ideas and being able to say the radical things, um, having sort of like maximalist demands or maximalist rhetoric, but really just no, no program of how to go about bringing it. But we see that like there really is a resurgence of working class power right now. And Bernie is one one very important part of that. And the strike wave for me is the most exciting thing that I've seen in my life, politically speaking. I just like, I can't believe that something like West Virginia then spread to Oklahoma and Arizona and is now continuing very soon, hopefully going to Denver. And I, I'm really, again, looking forward to, to touching base offline and getting each other's contact info and, and trying to find ways that we around the country can be in solidarity with your struggle. Um, it's just, you know, we, we really are in a moment where there is a lot of possibility. And I think we are very well positioned as teachers and as union militants to, to, to see this one out and to, to just have some semblance that life doesn't have to be the way it is. And that right. we don't have to live in this neoliberal hellscape and we have the ability to, to create the change that we want to see. Right on, right on. We're going to have to go ahead and leave it there. We'll get some final comments. But people, if you're listening in and you yourself are a teacher or you know teachers or there are teachers in your DSA chapter, in your uh, other socialist groups uh, chapter, 
whomever they may be, and you want to connect uh, with these two activists, um, they'll give their contact information uh, towards the end of the episode or just reach out to uh, Dead Pundits here on Twitter or Facebook or social media or email, and I will be sure to get you in contact with these folks. Um, Ryan will give us a little pitch for his uh, DSA teachers group that is in formation. And I, for one, have been really anxious and interested to see something come around in DSA that can transcend the uh, the I don't want to I don't want this to sound overly critical because it's not meant to be but something that can transcend the localism that sort of just kind of structurally emerges from an organization that is as loosely uh, federated as DSA. Now, that localism gives uh, each branch and chapter a tremendous amount of flexibility and dynamism in a way that these top-down, you know, Trotskyist-style groups from the 1960s and 70s, those, those groups did not have that that dynamism. And in a sense, it made them very tone deaf to various uh, political winds, which ultimately spelled their demise, I would argue, in many in many places. A lot of my uh, guests, my old timers, uh, my, my beloved old timers on the show uh, who've, who've spoken to this in their experience, uh, whether it was in the Socialist Workers Party in the U.S. in, ni- in the 1970s or, or elsewhere, will say that that was a disastrous situation. But one of the pitfalls of a kind of loosely federated organization is that there's all this really inspiring and tremendous development and growth in these local areas, but it doesn't transcend those regional uh, you know, limitations. And so anyway, I'm blabbing on because I'm really pumped to see the prospect of a cross kind of local uh, national uh, grouping form here. So Ryan, tell our, our listeners here a little bit about what you guys have in mind there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say I share many of your um – your perspectives on on that matter. Um, I am very excited that we are able to coordinate national campaigns and to be a real national organization that's taken seriously, that is easily recognized with our our Medicare for All campaign. And it's very much recognized as well with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, Our Democratic Socialist Labor Commission, which was formed at the last convention, coordinates our national labor work and is very um, much to thank for our ability to send those teachers that we just did to Los Angeles and, and will continue to be an important place for coordinating uh, this type of work in the future, whether that be industry-focused Democratic Socialist Teachers uh, organizing project. And you can find us on Facebook as Democratic Socialist Teachers, but as well as uh, in other key industries as well. So trying to create networks of communication between, again, healthcare workers and nurses all across the country to to figure out how we can relate to our unions and how we can relate um, connecting me- the, the call for Medicare for all to our union struggles and, and similar in, in, other, um, in other sectors. And, and finally, yeah, Demo- uh, DSA is not a Trotskyist sectarian organization. We are a, a big tent democratic socialist organization. And so there, there's bound to be different tendencies. There's bound to be different um, perspectives. And I'm excited that people are, are taking politics seriously now and are, are going out and finding people who have shared like-minded ideas and are, are creating formations and currents within DSA so that we can have open debates about politics. What is the best way that we think we can get to socialism? Let's make it about um, concrete political political uh, debate and discussion and then have democratic choices in order to move forward. And I believe through that process, we'll, we'll be able to get to an effective organization that you and I would like to see. 
Right. Absolutely. Trust the people, trust the democratic input of the membership, and they will lead you in the right direction. And I think the the way that these national uh, campaigns, these national organizations that you've alluded to, whether it be Medicare for all or this teacher's uh, connection here, the way that these have majority support in, in, in nearly every uh, chapter that I can think of in DSA is really telling of how, like I said, trust the members and uh, and they won't lead you astray. One of the other things that, you know, this is just kind of, I'm just vamping here and I'll get your thoughts on this, Justin, as we move forward, because we talked about, um, you know, the the need to kind of recruit um, just kind of regular ass people, right, <laughs> to, to this movement. And by that, I get a lot of shit for it. But I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be clear and reiterate for the 100th time what I mean by that. It's just people who's uh, who's, uh, they, who's, who's where, where people were in politics is just a means to an end. It's not a hobby. It's not something that they sort of are, are in, innately and inherently passionate about or drawn to, uh, but they could be won over to a certain political perspective or political, uh, 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 you know, form of activism as a way of, 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 you know, kind of, um, pursuing the things that they're sort of, already doing in life, right? Which this really gets to to my intervention. It kind of bugs me the way that when you find yourself going into a socialist organization, uh, the first question they have to ask you is they sort of give you this sort of menu, like you just showed up to a restaurant and they say, okay, here's what we're doing right now. Pick one. Which which one do you want to do? And, and there was a time there where I thought that was kind of neat. And I remember I showed up to my first socialist organization over 10 years ago, and they kind of said, these, these are our working groups. Pick which, which one do you want to do? And I settled in on Palestinian solidarity work because that was something I was already reading and thinking a lot about. And I cut my teeth there, and I learned a lot about activism and, organ, and organizational uh, being an organized socialist, and that was really important. So I don't mean to denigrate the positive aspects of that. But the question I started to ask myself along the way was, uh, why is it that a nurse who shows up to a socialist organization has to kind of pick from the ready-made buffet line? How come a nurse can't sort of just do what that nurse has already been doing, but just organize with a group of socialists locally and nationally to unionize uh, their workplace? You know, Why is it that a teacher has to go do this other thing primarily when their primary point of contact with the economy and in society is through their work. And so I think what we're doing here, what we're talking about is developing much more organic and holistic connections of people's daily lives to our socialist politics. And that's just in- intensely important. Um, what do you make of that development, Justin, in terms of um, you know developing a socialism for regular ass people the way I've just uh, spelled out? Yeah, I, 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 I just agreed a hundred percent. I mean, uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road is that socialism is supposed to lead to a better life for people and it's supposed to lead to direct material benefit. Um, you know, people need to see that their lives are getting better. And, you know, a lot of the appeal that Bernie had was talking to people about putting money in their pocket and about uh, free, you know, giving them health care and not having to worry about bills and, to, you know, give them less to worry about. I mean, I think the ideal for all socialists really should be to create a society, you know, where, where we don't have to worry about politics so much. Uh, you know, and we're not having to fight for every last little crumb that we're, that we're trying to get, you know, it's really the idea that we're going to build something better and provide for everybody so that we're not having to fight constantly for every little scrap. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's what I, uh, you know, that, that's where I see socialism is needing to go in any type of, uh, any type of socialist organization and organizing 
I think needs to really be focused on how are we going to materially benefit people in the short term? Because, um, you know, my, my experience uh, with, with people in the teachers unions, they're, you know, teachers are, teachers are normies. You know, I, <laughs> most teachers do not have a Twitter account. Most teachers do not, uh, you know, they're not schooled in, in Marxist theory. Most teachers do not have, uh, you know, much, much of maybe a theoret theoretical background. But when you talk about fighting for them so they can get uh, better pay, and fighting for them so that they can make a living wage and so that they can live in the city that they work and especially giving them the opportunity you know to to fight for seeing that the money that, that that's being collected around them is actually being spent on the kids uh, that they work with every day you know i don't every teacher gets into this profession usually for the same reason and none of it is around money it's around uh, helping people and just the whole idea there is wanting to make a living wage in order to make the world a better place and I think that right there might be, you know, the best socialist slogan ever, right? That's right. Uh, a living wage to make the world a better place. They're just knee-jerk, ready-made, uh, organic socialists. Yeah. All we got to do is uh, direct them in, in the right way and uh, give them the right inspiration and uh, their self-activity and own kind of uh, their inherent desire to make the world a better place will we'll, uh, produce amazing, incredible things. And with that being said, one thing I don't want to overlook, I can, I can kind of hear people jumping in and saying, hey, but wait, uh, isn't it true that getting engaged in socialist politics also integrates you with a much broader kind of array of struggles? And, and that's absolutely true. Um, and I don't mean to, to knock that. I don't, I don't want to sort of uh, push a certain kind of narrow sectoral approach to socialist politics. It's, it's undoubtedly the case, though, as experience shows time and again. That when a worker gets involved in a particular struggle, they immediately start to, to see those organic connections and that uh, their plight is uh, innately bound up with the plight of other oppressed and exploited people. Uh, so give us one last call to the barricades, Ryan, before we sign off here. Uh, how do you think this movement uh, in this, this strike wave of 2019 uh, can unite the working class, uh, not only just teachers but across the board, to, to unite against this neoliberal agenda? Oh, how jeez, uh, big question. I, I mean, I think I've said pretty much what I what my call to action is. But if, if really concretely, people should donate to the UTLA Strike Fund. Um, people should donate to Tacos for Teachers. People should uh, follow Justin and his union um, in Denver to to see what goes on with them. And you know, if if and when they take the strike vote, and it's presumably going to have a, a large margin of of, of success and they'd start taking the next steps towards going out on strike, even if they end up getting a better deal. Cause we often see when you threaten strikes, sometimes the city will even listen to you and you don't have to go out on strike, but regardless, we should pay attention and we should give them the solidarity that they're going to need. That's going to be financial solidarity. It's going to mean um, sending solidarity photos and, and it very well may be sending militants from around the country again to Denver. I myself am already starting to look at plane tickets to go to Oakland for if and when their strike kicks off mid February. Um, and so, so just keep your your eyes on the press. And I really think that 2019 is going to be a year of class struggle. And so it's it's a great time to be alive. That's right. That's right. People look out for Oakland. I'm in contact with some of the people out there in the East Bay, uh, the uh, Oakland Education Association and the East Bay uh, DSA chapter is uh, in, in, is very wrapped up and tied up into that struggle, but uh, can't really as we mentioned, it's very legally, uh, it's a legally arduous process. And they're in, in the moment right now where they can't even think about a strike action or, uh, or else the courts will come crashing down on their heads. And when, when that 
prohibition is lifted by way of kind of going through this process step by step in a very patient manner, I think you're going to see the dogs unleashed. And I'm really excited about that prospect in Oakland. So people look out for that too. But uh, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun. Ryan, uh, Ryan, Justin, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, come back on Dead Punnett Society soon. We'll have a meeting of the minds. People who are interested in talking to them can either look them up on social media or drop me a line on Dead Pundits at any of the uh, ways you can contact me. And uh, we'll get you guys in touch and uh, we'll, we'll put our heads together. Thanks so much for joining right, us. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks, Justin. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Adam, so much for the uh, opportunity to get the message out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, this you crazy mother...